hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Shut up and sit down. All right, everybody, we've got another great episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast for you. As we get further into the season here, we're going to start talking a little bit more about tactics and um, going through some hunts and talking to some guests um, about different types of tactics, different terrain, and, um, you know, things that we think, you know, will help us as well as the listener, um, you know, to maybe have maybe their most successful season yet. You know, that's what we're all looking forward to. So, um this week we're talking to Tim Clark. He runs the Michigan Saddle Hunters uh, page on Facebook, and he set his goals to kill a commemorative Bucks of Michigan buck every year or uh, just shoot some does. So his goal is a 100-inch deer or better. And if you've been following along with the you know hunting public, hunting beast, tethered, public land challenge, um, maybe some of you guys that aren't in Michigan are getting to see kind of um, what it's like to hunt in Michigan and, and, and to see how you know difficult that may be to kill a 100-inch deer um, every year in, in Michigan. So um, Tim's had a couple really cool hunts uh, when I was talking to him a while back at the uh, Michigan BHA rendezvous. Um, he was telling me how he had adapted, you know, to, to other types of pressure from, um, other hunters. So not only to the deer, but also to the hunters and, and how he was using that kind of to his advantage. And, um, and then one of the stories that he's got is probably one of the best days in the woods, um, ever. Um, it's just a really, really cool story, and it stems from trying to get away from people and uh, adapting on the fly during the season. So um, I just want to get him on here and talk about that, and uh, you know, maybe it can help some of you um, to kind of think outside the box, and that, that's kind of what we're trying to do here. So um, great episode, uh, fun conversation, and like I say, one of the best hunting stories probably you know, that I've ever heard. And, you know, I get to hear all of Frank's stories. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a definite, uh, must listen. Um, but let's get some of the stuff out of the way right now. Just thanks to, you know, our Patreons, our latest Patreon is, uh, actually one of our former guests, Mark Slagle. Um, so thanks Mark for, you know, putting up some, 
some money, you know, every month to, to help us out and continue doing what we're doing. Every little bit helps, and we certainly appreciate that. Um, you know, I've got your koozies and stickers in the mail, and uh, those are going out, um, you know, you know, they should be reaching you anytime here now. And so we send out, you know, a little care package to each one of our Patreons, you know, just to say thank you and really do appreciate it as well as we do quarterly giveaways. Um, you know, this, this quarter, you know, by the end of the year, we're going to be giving away a saddle or a gift card to either tethered or trophy line. Um, you know, one of the, the saddle companies, that's what it's going to be for this last quarter of 2019. So if you're interested in that, go over and check our uh, Patreon page account out. Um, it's uh, patreon.com forward slash Bowhunter Chronicles podcast or the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast.com. There's a link to our Patreon right on there. So, um, you know, go ahead and check that out. If not, you want some koozies, we've got some on the website, just ordered some more shirts. Um, so, you know, people have been asking when there going to be more shirts in. Those are on order, so we'll have those up pretty pretty soon. But if you're not into all that and you just like listening to the show, like listening to Frank, like hearing a different perspective, you know, please just hit that uh, five-star rating button on whatever platform you're listening. That really helps us. And if you love what we're doing, if you hate what we're doing, either way, you know, please write us a review. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, things that we can do better because that's the only feedback we get is, you know, how many people see the show and those types of reviews. So those things help us out, you know, more than you guys understand. So if you haven't done that, please do that. Tell a friend, share with them your favorite episode and, you know, just just get us out there in front of as many people as you can because that really helps us out and, you know, helps us to know, you know, that we're being well received. So every little bit helps. We really certainly appreciate it. And uh, I think you're really going to like this episode. Tim's got some great stories. So without further ado, here we go. Enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Another episode of the Bullhunter Chronicles for you. Adam and Frank here. John is out on his uh, yearly anniversary trip in October. Who gets married in October? And and that's a uh, bowhunter, bowhunting podcast guy. That's uh, so on the leaf tour. Yeah, yeah, got to do the color tour. So uh, today we've got uh, another fellow Michigan hunter. You might remember him from the podcast that we did about raising your kids outside. Um, Tim Clark is back on the on the podcast here to talk to us today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about tactics, and um, you know, Tim kind of has some outside of the box thinking. He's got lofty goals hunting the state of Michigan, and uh, I think uh, there, a lot of our listeners can benefit from some of the the things that uh, you know Tim's got to say and some of his uh, types of ideas and the, the way that he kind of uh, approaches his hunting style. So, um, how you doing tonight, Tim? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Tired. Long day. You know, hunting, killing, recovering, cutting, um, all that sort of thing. But uh, that's another podcast for another day. Um, Man, it's the most <laughs> wonderful time of the year. Right. And, uh, you know, <laughs> being this early in the year, now it's 
know, now it gets into the fun stuff because now I'm like, all right, the pressure's off. Everything is, everything is good. A lot of days left. Best yeah. time still coming up. So. Yep, I actually filled a doe tag on Friday evening, a public land doe tag, and that one was that felt really good. Just like you said, take the pressure off, get that first one under the belt for the year, and now it's that's now a, it's easy to, you know, take my time into the rest of it. I get my kids out with me quite a bit, so I've been making sure I do kind of a one and one. You know, I'll get out one day by myself and then a day with them. And, it sure is nice when I fill my own tag a little bit earlier. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Frank, we, you know, John's on vacation, but the his buddy Ernie, myself, we're we're on the board. Frank had his opportunity. Yeah. And uh, Mr. Stick got in the way. Oh, Mr. Mr. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, yeah, Tim. So for guys that aren't familiar with, uh, you know, maybe didn't hear the last podcast or um, anything like that, give us a little bit about a backstory on on yourself a little bit. Introduce yourself to the listener. Sure. Yeah. So my name's Tim Clark. Um, I was pretty much brought up without you know, my dad never hunted or anything, but he did have some friends that did, and by the time I was about. 11 or 12 years old, um, he had been asked to go to deer camp with a couple of his buddies. And so he asked if I wanted to go, if my brothers wanted to go. And I shot my hand up and said, yeah, I'd love to go. And, uh, boy, after that, it was, I was hooked. Um, Dad never killed a deer while we were at deer camp there. But for those first two years, I couldn't so I just sat in the box blind with Dad, didn't know anything different, but every time we'd see deer, it was exciting. And By the time I was 14, I got to sit by myself, and I pulled the trigger on my first Michigan buck that afternoon. It was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'd been sitting in this box blind just watching just tons and tons and tons of does come pouring out of this swamp, this great big parrot pile that we had, and, and uh, finally a spike came out, so I shot it. So that was my first one, and uh, pretty much ever since then, it's just been a steady progression into actually becoming a hunter, and more than you know, more than just sitting in a blind a couple days a year. But I did do that for a few years, and then by the time I was 17, I had my first successful bow hunt. I picked my first bow up when I was 15, and had a couple years of missing everything that came within 40 yards of me. And uh, <laughs> finally, finally stuck one when I was 17, and since then I haven't had a year that I haven't killed one with a bow. So I've just, you know, progressively gotten more and more successful. But through the years, um, you know, I went through the whole kill any buck that comes my way to eventually it was, oh, right around two. 2008, I believe, um, I had set my sights, actually it was a little bit earlier than that, I had set my sights on not killing any small buck. Um, I wanted to I wanted to put him in the record book, and that sort of stemmed from uh, a friendship that I have. My hunting partner, John, he and I, um, we've been hunting together you know, since probably 2005 or so, and he's, um, he's a scorer for commemorative bucks in Michigan. So 
we get to have our hands on a lot of antlers and I've helped him score a whole lot of different bucks and stuff. And, and, uh, well, I just think it's really cool. I think that's kind of a fun goal to set and a hundred inches with a bow. I don't think is an unachievable goal. It just takes some work, right. You know, and it's not going to happen everywhere or for any, for everybody, you know, but, um, I've kind of set my goals on that. So that's, that's where I go. And, uh, it means I don't kill bucks every year, you know, for the most part. But I do have, I don't know, five, six, seven of them on the wall that are, you know, 100-inch bucks or better. I think 125 is my biggest one here in the state. I've got a couple of those, but just shy of Pope and Young, actually, by the time they dry. But, um, yeah, you know, they're not giants. They're, they're big for Michigan, but um, one of the things that has, uh, has kind of stood out to me is I, I hunt for the experience and learning things a whole lot more than the antlers. I just kind of set my goals on those because that's typically a two and a half or three and a half year old deer that I'm able to find. Every once in a while I'll find one that's bigger, but some of the most memorable ones are actually, they're not the biggest antlers, they're the biggest bodies. I don't know how many you've shot big body deer, you know, but when you get over that 200 pound range dressed out, it's just, it's piles of fun. You see them, they're like a whole different animal. And uh, so I've focused a lot on trying to get, you know, the, the bigger, older, best deer that I can find on the properties that, I, that I'm able to hunt. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's been a pretty fun journey for me. And now I'm to the point where my, um, <laughs> my financial situation doesn't allow me to both raise kids and pay for hunting leases and <laughs> the thought of buying property that I could groom or anything doesn't really cross my radar anymore. So it's public land stuff. And, and uh, so we've taken some trips out of state and come back empty-handed, you know, passing up smaller ones and stuff. But um, but it's a, it's a fun game that we play. You know, I, I always find bucks sometimes they're not the caliber I'm wanting to kill. So. And so with the, with the switching over to public land, um, how has that impacted your, your thought process or, or whatever? You know, I've said it a bunch of times on, on this podcast for sure. Uh, but I always used to thought, I, I always thought that public land was like in somewhat less than, or like, you know, for, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've heard you say that before. And yeah. I've, I felt the exact same way. Like, that's a last resort. Why would I want to go put myself through all that hassle? You know, all the pressure that you find on public land and running into everybody else and blah, 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 all that stuff. But to me, now I've gotten to the point where, shoot, when I run into people on public land, you know, I go and introduce myself and say hello, you know, and we're doing the same thing. We're, we're out there for the same purpose, so no sense being upset that somebody else is using property that belongs to them as much as me. Um, but a lot of the time, what I really like about it the most is that there's always opportunity. You know, in Michigan, we've got so much public land. We've got, you know, 7 million acres plus. That's, that's a whole lot of public land that we can explore. Uh, now, granted, it's 
all chopped up all across the state, but, you know, it's been said on countless other podcasts I've listened to and, and all that's like, hey, if you don't like it here, just drive down the road a little ways. There's another piece you can find, you know, and um, and that's the truth. And it's, it's pretty cool. Like, for example, tonight, you know, I took my son, he's nine, he really wanted to get out and uh, have a chance to kill a deer and there's a property that I had found. I actually killed a doe off of it on Friday. And there was a bunch of turkeys back there and a whole lot of deer. And, uh, boy, he's he's still hunting on that mentored youth license. So he's got every tag available in his <laughs> pocket. And he's like, can we go down there? <laughs> you know, it's public land. And uh, so we go out there to, to hunt. And the thing that crossed my mind as we were getting set up in there was, you know, you just never know what's going to happen. Uh, you know, you're hunting a big tract of public property. Even if there are other people out there, they could be bumping stuff your way. You could be sitting in a spot where anything could come out of the swamp. Um, you really don't know. You know, we've got a, a family property here that's the exact opposite of that. That's like, you know, maybe once a year somebody spots a decent buck in the area. Um, and I could, I could do that. I could hunt behind the house, but uh, there's just not a lot of deer, and you know it when you live on it. You know, you know that there's just not a lot of opportunity there. It's kind of that. There's a lot of, it's like a wishful thinking or hope, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> you know, when you sit out there on a piece of property that you really don't know, you're just checking it out. Boy, anything could happen. It makes the whole hunt pretty exciting. So, yeah. I like that. I think that aspect of of public land really does it makes me feel like hey you know anybody can do this and if this one ends up being a buck and we don't see anything that's worth pulling the figure on or releasing the string on we'll move on to another one you know there's plenty of it to bounce between so <laughs> as long as it's relatively safe you know then i'm i'm all about it now granted i I do avoid those properties that are smaller and heavy pressure during the gun season with the kids and stuff, but bow hunting, shoot, it's a great thing. Yeah, I th- you know, for me, it's just more of, when you said that you like that challenge of finding the deer and, and kind of, you know, having that yeah. that, that sort of uh, thing, until, you know, we started all this, you know, it, which really changed my whole perspective is, is talking to other people. It's like, you know, the boundaries, right? So if you're mm-hmm. hunting a even a 40-acre piece of property and there's a couple of good spots to hunt and everything's happening just on the other side of the the fence in your neighbor's property, well, you can't just walk over there and, you know, or you can't just go find another better spot on your 40 acre piece you know you're limited to um that one stand or that you know those couple locations and now you're just hoping that that deer meanders over whereas when you get these big giant tracks of public land if you're sitting somewhere and you see something happen 200 yards away 100 yards away you can just get down and move over there and you know, you don't have to worry about it. And if, like you said, if there's guys or anything like that, you can just go, you know, find another spot relatively easily. Yeah. But if you 
put all your eggs in one basket in a in a public or a private land setting and you and bring people with you or anything like that you, it narrows it down so much and i never thought about it like that you know being an, an asset rather than a you know a handicap i guess yeah that's a good way to put it so you know and i i'm not not to downplay you know private land hunting there's, there's definitely good stuff to be had there too but i found that on my on the family property here that I'm able to hunt the amount of work that it would take to make it something that was, uh, that was going to give me more than just a spot or two to hunt. That's a, that's a whole lot of throwing all your eggs in one basket. So I really like the idea of being able to move around and get away from pressure if you need to or find the deer and move on them. And it's been a really fun progression for me. Um, we've gotten to the point where you know, I'm spending yeah, hours just every night for you know, a long time just looking at on X, looking at my maps and and digging through areas, you know, making making predictions of where I think things would be, you know, and you start looking at transition lines around swamps and um, you know, anything and everything that you can find. And now I, I'm not going to regurgitate a whole bunch of information that you can hear on, you know, any other tactical podcast or, you know, reading on the hunting beast or different forums online and stuff. There's, there's a lot of, you know, kind of that, that same thought process. Some of the stuff that has made the most sense to me is when I find an area on a map, I'll go for a drive, usually by myself, and I'll go just from the road, look around and drive the sections and find whether it matches what the map looks like to me in my head. And once I do that, I'm starting to find, okay, if it's got crop field close to it, I'll start glassing the fields and seeing if there's big deer, if there's anything that's worth chasing in there. And if there's not, then I just move on to the next one. That's kind of like my, my starting point in the summertime. And, you know, there's the whole post-season scouting, you know, wintertime running around through the woods. I do a little bit of that. I'd like to do more, but I just never have the time. And, uh, you know, for me, I just can't sacrifice every single Saturday to, you know, to go stomp around through the swamps. So I usually get, you know, a couple, you know, two or three good days that I can do that and I'll key on spots, but I really, I think they're the, the best chance ones. Um, but then summertime, I'm following up on what I'm, I've been looking at on the map, trying to find deer. And then part of what you're asking on the strategies and stuff or how I get into them, you know, most of the time when I find deer that are in a field, they pretty much know they're being watched before too long because if they're in a field and you can see them from the road, I'm not the only guy looking at them. So then I just have to get creative in how I'm going to approach, you know, getting into their habitat. And uh, so it's, you know, sort of property dependent, right? You're not going to do the same thing on property A as you're going to do on property B, but um, every once in a while you can, 
you can get the cards to fall in your direction if you kind of know a little bit more than just, hey, there's a deer in the area. So, for instance, you know, there's there's one property I really like to hunt. Um, it's been a couple years of running around out there, and um, it's, it's one of those properties that's sort of like that typical, the deer can easily see right to the access parking spot. And um, so I'll, you know, looking at that, every time I'd pull into that access lot, deer out in the field would see, you know, the deer that, it, you know, the deer that are in the field are going to watch you. Sometimes they'd put up with it, um, but they know that that's just, that's a point of entrance. And the best hunting is within the eyesight of there. I mean, it's not very far. Um, if you can get to it without spooking everything out of it. So that's kind of the tricky thing. So I, I spend some time in the summertime, you know, trying to find those spots, the ways that you can get into things that you wouldn't normally just walk a straight line to. So, you know, kind of finding, finding the back doors to places. Um, and sometimes that means putting in either a long walk or a boat ride or, um, you know, getting up a couple hours earlier. Sometimes it's, the spot's only going to work if it's raining or if the wind's blowing a certain direction. So I sort of just put all that information together and go, okay, I know I can't hunt this spot if I've got any sort of north wind. And so I'm always paying attention to that's where I want to be if there's any sort of south wind, and I'm going to access it in this direction or whatever. And Those are things that, you know, I think a lot of guys – either don't think about or think about in just pieces, you know. Um, I think when you're trying to be successful on a deer, you kind of got to look at it from a holistic standpoint. Like, it's not just a matter of being in the right tree, it's being there at the right time. And avoiding it, if you, you know, even if it's the only day you have to hunt that week, if things aren't right, just stay right away from it, you know, and wait until it is. Save up your vacation days if you got personal days or whatever that you can take. Wait until the weather's right and take one, you know. Well, do you find maybe that uh, these public pieces, uh, if the other guys are doing uh, the same thing every time, that the deer, you know, pick up on what they're doing and stuff, and, and that changes their habits too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, they're, they're, you know, I've watched them. A lot of times the guys will do the same thing every every time they go in, you know. They'll they'll leave a parking area and, and they, they access the woods, you know, or their hunting ground the same way. No doubt, yeah. And I think they're watching that. I think the deer know that just as well as we do. You know, they're, dude, actually just tonight I, I was down at this, this is a new property, you know. I just did a quick scout of it in March. That was one of the only early season ones, or not early, but post-season ones that we did. Found some good signs, so we thought we'd go back to it. I hunted it Friday. We did okay there, and the only reason we went there because we were flooded out of everywhere else. But mm-hmm. today I went back there, and just on a whim, I had decided I was going to follow this little uh, little ditch line that went out into the middle of this wide-open field. It's, there's nothing out there, but there's a little clump of grass and just this one little willow on the edge of it, just a little willow brush. 
And uh, I walked along that thing, and sure enough, there's a bed right there, the base of that thing. And I could see my truck from it. I could see the whole, that access point, and any deer could lay right there and watch that, and completely undetected, you know, wouldn't even, wouldn't even have to get up and move. You know, nobody's going to walk down that, that ditch line. There was, there was a bed underneath there. I think they probably do that more than, more than we know. So in that, that field where you, you said that you could see the, the, the deer in the field and the, they could see the parking area, um, and the hunting was close, how did you access that? And, you know, were you able to be successful in doing so there or how did, how did that go? Yeah. So <laughs> this is a fun story. <laughs> um, the, the outcome of it isn't fun for me, but, but the, the tactics are, are wonderful. <laughs> um, everything played out perfect. It was one of those that I had seen a handful of good bucks in the area and the bedding area sort of sat on the, it'd be the Northwest corner of this section basically from where the parking area is. And there was quite a bit of, um, there's a bean field and then sort of a all swamp grass section before you get into the bedding area. And anything out in those beans or the swamp grass or on the other side of it can see all the way to the parking lot. And although it's, you know, a few hundred yards away all the way to the bedding, I'd watch guys part and walk right along those field edges and all the way back towards the bedding and climb up in the nearest tree to the edge of it and expect that they're going to kill deer, you know. And it's like I could see what they were doing. From my tree, there's another woodlot that was a little ways away from there. And I was like, dude, if I can see what you're doing, every deer that's out here can see what you're doing. And um, so that was sort of what made me want to sort of devise a plan to get into the back side of the bedding. Um, crazy thick in there. And so what I found was, this might be taboo. I mean, for a lot of guys, it's like you never hunt a bedding area in the morning. Trying to cut them off coming to bed is a bad idea. And it typically is. Um, but this particular spot has a drainage on the north side of it. It's a big drainage. And the best bedding is tucked right up close to it. So I sort of knew that if a buck's going to bed there, they're going to come from the fields to the south, work their way through all the thick, you know, sort of thick stuff, and then they're going to get to the really thick stuff right along this ditch line. Um, if they're going to bed there, they'll be getting there, you know, the latest. So that's my best chance to shoot one basically right at daybreak. Um, so what I kind of did, I said, I'm going to get in there crazy early, like in my tree set up hour and a half, almost two hours before the sun came up. So it's a crazy early morning. It's a little over an hour drive for me. You know, it's not the type of thing that you just say, oh, I'm going to go hunting this morning. It was, this one was pretty calculated. I had the right wind. I needed a southerly wind. Um, so that worked for me. But I also really wanted rain um, just because the whole edge of that ditch line could be pretty crunchy getting into there. Um, there's a lot of trees along the edge there that 
had been trimmed and stuff while they were clearing out a ditch. So there's a lot of stuff that could potentially be be crunchy. So rain was helpful. So I had the day that I needed. And the tricky part was getting across that field. So I figured if the deer were in the field, they're going to be south of the bedding, and that's where the parking is. Uh, but there was also at the farthest east end of the property, there's another access point um, that I basically figured if I could park way down there and walk up the field edge, then I'd be able to get back to my spot, circle back around. But the other problem that I had was um, I didn't want to leave the parking lot empty and have somebody else pull into there. It seemed like every time I'd you know, pull into that parking spot, if someone else pulled in there, they'd usually go, hey, I'm just going to go to this other spot down the road. So I wanted to leave my car parked at the most typical access point so it would deter other hunters from going in there and messing up my plan. But then I still had to get three-quarters of a mile down the road to the other end of the property to access it, you know. So so I did. I parked my car there. I mean, we're talking almost middle of the night, you know. It's 3 o'clock in the morning or whatever. Parked the car and walked down the road and circled all the way back around, down the drainage, um, and then was able to get into my, my tree that I wanted to get into. Got into there clean. I didn't didn't bump anything out of the field that I knew of. Nothing blew at me. Nothing took off running. I didn't see any tails. So I was really, really hoping that I didn't, you know, totally screw up the whole field. But um, by the time I got into there, I was in my tree and overlooking this really thick bedding area. It's got a there's a patch of um, I don't even know what they are. There's just a real thick patch of brush in the middle of it and a bunch of swamp grass all the way around it. And sure enough, I mean, just shortly after daybreak, he came wandering into there, and it was like, I don't know if you ever seen a buck in his bedroom, but they're like a different animal in there. Like, he was not on edge at all. He was just tiptoeing into his bed. You know, it was like, he's almost there. And when he came into my field of view, I had the camera rolling on him, and I was... And now it's dialed right in, and he's coming in, and strangest thing, there was a deadfall that was laying there that I figured would funnel him straight to me before he'd turn and jump into his bed there. Well, he ended up, as soon as I had almost a shot at him, he jumped right through the middle of the deadfall. And uh, <laughs> uh, it's a pretty funny video because, you wouldn't think this thing with this great big piece of headgear on would jump through the middle of a downed tree, but he did, and squirted right into there, and then he, he actually laid down in his bed for quite a while. I stood there just thinking, he's he's dead to rights. As soon as he stands up, I'm going to have an arrow through him in no time. And uh, so I had him ranged at 35 yards laying in there. Well, he got up, and he got circled around the the close side of it to me and uh, I don't even remember how fast it happened. It was so fast I didn't even have time to hit record. I thought I did but um, 
<laughs> when he popped up out of his bed, all of a sudden he was circling around in the front of it. And it was almost like he was going to jump back into there and uh, and bed down again. I don't know if it was because he was wanting a better view or, or what, but he sort of circled around it and then looked like he was going to jump right back in the middle of it. I went to take a 35-yard shot that was actually more like a 30-yard shot and back, and uh, away he went. <laughs> Out of my life, and I never did get another uh, another crack at him in there. But everything else worked. I mean, if I wouldn't have rushed the shot, if I would have taken my time and done my part of it, you know, as far as the shooting, it would have been an awesome story. But Well, it still was. Yeah, yeah. Story for you guys. <laughs> because we've all been there. That's why. <laughs> oh, good. I'm not the only one that's oh, ever no. missed a big buck. Oh, no. <laughs> this particular one, he had a he had a third third main beam on him. He was just a really nice buck. Just one of those that super unique, lots of character, and uh, didn't pan out. But but the tactics there, you know. You talk about thinking outside of the box, and I think that's a, a key to just about anything, but, you know, it really applies well. There's there's easy hunting that can be good, can be decent, and then there's there's that next level that, uh, you know, when you get out of your car and you don't just, you know, walk down the field edge like everybody else and climb up into your tree stand on the field edge like everybody else, there's a lot more opportunity, you know, when you start doing something different. So sometimes it just takes doing a little bit of homework and looking at maps and trying to figure out, hey, you know, where are people most prone to be? And if you if you kind of highlight those spots, I think the deer are doing the same thing. So I just you know, I try to stay away from that for the most part. You know, sometimes you don't have an option limited in space, you know, size of the property or whatever, but no. well, if you've got the opportunity to do something different. What size, what size properties are you, are you looking for though? I mean, you know, do you, you know, what you're, what you're talking about there? Yeah. Um, I usually don't go for anything too small, like less than 20 acres. Every once in a while I will, but, um, Usually I scout those ones when I'm turkey hunting in the spring. Um, so I'll take those smaller ones because usually if you're, you know, if you're turkey hunting in the spring, you can find whether or not there's deer there and then whether or not there's other hunter signs, you know. Have guys been setting up ladder stands or hanging on? Sometimes they're even left out there. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, if you look for those, you know, the typical spots where you would expect somebody to you know, park the truck and go walk the field edge, climb and stand. If you find evidence of people there, I just stay right away from it, you know, in the fall. But a lot of the time, um, I'm looking for pieces of property that I can move around on. You know, if I run into somebody while I'm out there, I don't really want to have to leave. I'd rather say, okay, he's got this area. I'm going to move along to a different section. Well, being, um, being mobile is that's the way to hunt, though. I mean, that's... Yeah, you know, yeah. I've and always I, always hunted that. Yep. I'm a big advocate of that these days. I mean, I've been I've been saddle hunting for... This is my 10th season now, 
Um, and I find that, you know, I can walk around with my saddle on and I've got everything I need to climb and hunt and everything in just my small day pack. And I can, I can be really mobile. So if I find a spot that looks good, I can hunt it. If somebody else is there, I can keep on moving and I don't feel like, ah, oh, crap, I got to pack up my big old climber again or whatever. I did that for a couple of years and it just wasn't for me. I but, still do um, hunt it. The, yeah. thing, the thing is, though, you know, like if you go into an area, I kind of like them guys that put the ladder stands in because you know where they're going to be, you know. I mean, yep. they're, they're, they're in areas, you know, that they're not moving, you know. That's where they're going to hunt, you know. There must be guys that, you know, it's possibly they just hunt the weekends or whatever, you know, or evening or something. But they're, uh, you know, they're in there, and I, I say, okay, there's, you know, three or four of them in here. You know, we're, we're going to hunt over here. Exactly. Yep. And you usually find those ones in the spots you would expect to find them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're they're very rarely tucked in somewhere where, you know, where you'd expect to find a big buck. So, you know. So let's say that um, you're talking to, um, or the listener here is the, the ladder stand guy, the field edge guy, or the always hunted the same stand on his piece of private land guy and they say well i don't want to go out there because i don't want i don't know where to go or you know i i go out there and i don't know what kind of sign i'm looking for you know how are you locating these um outside of like glassing on the field edges and stuff what are you using to target you know a hundred inch deer in michigan which like you said and especially now i think there's there are you know, missions coming along. There's, there's bigger deer being killed. You know, every year, um, but it, it's still a tall order. And people say, well, you know, I just want to get my buck, or, you know, I just want to go out there and and hunt. But a lot of that is that they don't know what they're looking for, or like how they're they're breaking this this sort of stuff down. So, how do you go about, you know, locating? the larger age class deer on these properties. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm really coming to understand more and more of is looking at transition lines. Um, Deer are edge creatures, right? So um, you're very rarely going to be looking for a big buck in the daylight in open timber. Um, you know, you may find them during the rut when a hot doe goes cruising through there, but, you know, early season, you know, until you get into late October, you're really not, you know, in open timber, most likely you're not going to find a buck in the daylight, not a big buck. Um, you know, you, you might get lucky, especially like opening weekend before there's any pressure that's been applied. You might find them coming to some acorns or something in the open, but. I'll usually try to find the edges of those areas. Look for the thick, thick cover, and then the closest food that I can find to the cover. And this is stuff that, you know, I'm just basically regurgitating other people's information. You know, this is stuff that I've learned by reading and listening to John Eberhardt and Dan Infall and the guys that are, you know, <laughs> that have been historically getting it done year after year after year. But, you know, if you can find a isolated oak tree that's real close to a thick swamp, 
there's a good chance that if it's dropping acorns and stuff, that's going to be the first spot that a buck's going to come out to just before, you know, it's totally dark. So you may get a chance at them if you can shoot, to, you know, to that tree. Um, I actually found one of those just the other day. I was walking through the edge of a, it was just basically an oak flat. There was a whole bunch of red oaks in it, and I started moving towards the thicker cover, um, and it kind of, it got real wet, and then I found just this one little island, and it was, it might have been 40 or 50 yards around, but there was one lone oak tree. It, it was a white oak, and it was just spewing acorns. And uh, <laughs> it was like, well, this is, okay, the sky's opened up, and here we go. I'm going to climb a tree here and kill a deer. Hmm. And uh, I ended up killing a doe there. I mean, four of them came in, and three of them left on their feet, you know. <laughs> and uh, they're the, those are the types of places that usually I'm, I'm looking for something that's, that's different than just sitting in the open woods. I, I, nece- I don't necessarily look for a place where I can see tons of deer. Um, I used to love sitting on field edges on all the leases and stuff that I've had just because you can always see, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 deer a night, you know, but um, you're not seeing the deer that you're, that you want to see, you know, so. So when I'm looking for big bucks, specifically, I'm looking for rub lines and scrapes. If, if you can find scrapes, that's great. Um, but, you know, the, the rub lines, will tell you a pretty good story, too. If you can find them coming out of that thick cover, um, you'll know whether, hey, they're getting out of their bed and they're hitting every tree coming out of here and they're definitely using this trail. Um, then you can start paying attention to wind direction and how you need to set up looking over them. And if you can find where that's, you know, connecting the dots, going to some real close food, those acorns or anything else that you can find, that's usually a really good starting point because it's usually not too far. I mean, that's, that's not like you got to walk three miles deep into a swamp and, you know, go swimming to find a deer. That's just, when you start trying to, to get yourself separated from where the, the doe groups are coming out, um, you start actually finding where, you know, you're getting into a you know, little different classification of deer. And, that's been a fun journey for me because I like I like to see a lot of deer for one, but um, but I I like actually getting past all those big numbers of deer that are the first ones out to the field, the ones that are you know they're not the ones I'm trying to target most of the time. Um, but when you start moving into the the thicker cover, that's usually where I expect that I'm going to see bucks, and it usually does happen. Um, now, granted, I mean we are in Michigan, so. I see a ton of spikes and four points and six points and stuff where they just can't grow fast enough no matter how much I wish. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, that's usually what I'm looking for. It's usually for, like, the guy that's, you know, that's asking me, hey, how do I try to find a big deer? That's usually the jumping off point, you know. Look for the thickest cover closest to the food and start digging into it. Move a little bit further in. If you don't find them there, move a little bit further in. If you don't find them there, just keep on moving until you do. And, you know, eventually you'll either end up being able to hunt the deer or you'll, you know, sometimes you bump them. Sometimes they do see you coming or whatever, and 
you learn something from it. And usually I leave those spots alone for a couple of days before I go back to them. But if I bump a big deer, if I know one's in there, I usually go back. So. so you're looking for the transition lines and things like that. And when you're walking through the woods, I mean, Frank, for years and years and years, this is one of those old school woodsmanship uh, pro tips for the guys that, that don't know. But if you, and if you've ever listened to Frank tell a story or you ever go hunting with him or he tells you how to get to a spot, he says, cause he doesn't even, he doesn't like to go in until gray light anyways. But he says, you go in and you'll just look over there. And when you see the woods change, um, where where you, you'll just start to see it getting light over there, that's that edge. And so you'll go down there, and then it makes another edge. <laughs> and, then, and those are those transition lines. So where those um, two different types of uh, vegetation meet. So even when you're going in the dark, and if you, you're on a property that you haven't ever been on before, you know, that's something that you can, you can pick up on, you know, fairly easily. Um, but... When you're looking at Onyx and stuff like that, because you, you had a, a, I think it was last year, a pretty good hunt with you and your, your hunting partner where you just picked out a spot on Onyx on the map and had a, a, a pretty good experience. So when you're looking at when you're looking at Onyx just a, on a map, on a, a big old, you know, sea of green and a couple transition lines where you can't go in and see the rub lines, you can't see... Um, scrapes or anything like that you're just looking at at a map um, how are you breaking that that down and and maybe in in doing so you know kind of outline what happened on that hunt and how it all came together like the, your thought process there yeah yeah so that particular one what I was looking at was there was a there was a pretty substantial section of woods um, that was attached to an ag field. And you know the ag field, especially the secluded one. This one was a long way off the road. Um, you know that's going to get just hammered by the deer. So what I'm looking for in a case like that, when I'm looking at this ag field, I'm looking at this block of woods and then everything around the area, I'm basically looking for those transition lines again. Um, I was looking at a marsh to the north of this ag field and a huge block of woods to the west of it. Um, we basically, I, I looked at the, the marsh to the north and I said, boy, that transition line looks really good. It really, really looked thick um, going into there. And... I said, man, if there was a deer that was wanting to get as far away as he could from any sort of human intrusion, he's going to get to the edge of that marsh, you know, right where it transitions from the sort of standing timber inside of there. It was pretty sparse, but um, there's timber there. And then it basically just turns into swamp grass, just really, really wet, thick stuff, and there's these little clumps of high ground out there. You can see these little little clumps of red brush or trees that were out in there. Um, there was nothing that was, you know, as it turned out once we got boots on the ground, there was nothing that was 
like oaks or anything out there, like little oak islands. That would have been awesome. But um, but looking at all those little clumps out there, you know that there's high ground, and that high ground is where they're going to retreat to and bed if they're going to, if they're going to need to get that far away from people. Um, this particular hunt was a it was a drawing. It was a lottery hunt. So in order to to be able to hunt there, we had to get drawn. Once we got drawn, we had basically a day we could go scout it. And the way that it played out, we decided that we would walk through that that big section of timber, just right parallel with the ag field, um, and see what we could see in there for one, but I really wanted to get into that marsh. I had dropped a pin on Onyx, actually a couple of them along that, that transition line on the marsh, and said, we got to scout this. It was one of those, I could see this little row of those clumps of what looked like, you know, potential bedding going out into that marsh. And um, so as we were going through the woods, we actually got to the far north end of it. And when, you know, basically the, the open timber ended and we got into the real thick stuff that was growing along, uh, there's a drainage along there and it just kind of dropped off that area and it got real thick it was a it was one of those that's where the woods changed um as we were you know working our way along that we bumped a couple of good bucks i mean probably 110 120 range um bumped them right out of their beds and I mean, we weren't very far at all from from that marsh um probably within within 200 yards of where we ended up killing bucks um, basically the way that, that played out, we got to that bedding and we decided, wow, this is, this is like a really good spot and it's pretty close to the ag field. Um, there was a lot of good sign in there. Uh, so we decided we would probably pump that spot, but if it didn't pan out, we'd go up and try the marsh, but we weren't going to be able to access it that way because we had to walk through all sorts of bedding to get to that marsh. Um, potential bedding. So that was another one of those. I had to devise a different plan. So I picked up a boat and we were able to float down a river basically um, and work their way into it. But um, one of the things that we really learned there was, you know, we hunted that, that timber. We had definitely, we had bumped two shooter bucks out of it. And so kind of one of those, you know, I'd, I'd like to give them a fair shot before we move into that marsh and try anything else. Um, so we decided we'd hunt that the first day, and we got into there, and we saw some deer. Um, we ended up, John shot a doe the first night, and I didn't shoot anything. I saw quite a few deer. The next morning, I saw a good 10-point, um, but he didn't, and it was right by that bed, too, uh, but he didn't get close enough to me. Um, we ended up hunting there, and we ran into people. It was one of those spots that was, it, yeah, it was a long way back in there, but fairly easy walk to get that mile back in. Uh, so we ended up running into people. So by day three, we decided we were going to take the boat and go back into that marsh. And this is where, you know, your question, you know, how did you pick a spot and then go hunt it successfully, you know, looking at the way that particular piece sort of laid out, it was kind of like 
L-shaped. Um, so there's a river that's running on the west side of this, from the north to the south. And um, we were able to access along the river. And it sort of takes a, a turn um, and sort of runs east to west and sort of pinches off. There's, there's sort of a, almost a natural choke point there. So I dropped a pin there just thinking, boy, that really looks good because it's a natural choke point for one. Um, sort of the woods thins down a little bit, but then it was right at the base of where this little strip of those bedding pieces went right out into the marsh. And this was all just basically from looking at Onyx. It was not, you know, boots on the ground scouting yet, but we decided we'd give it a try in the middle of the day. So we hopped in the boat, we went up there, and we got out of the boat and started walking along this little ditch in the middle of this marsh grass. And within 10 steps out of the boat, we found a scrape. And, I mean, it pretty much confirmed, hey, we want to stay here and hunt a little bit. So we, uh, <laughs> we start walking along the edge of this thing just thinking we have no idea what we're getting into. It was pretty much all flooded timber, which that's just a whole different thing to me. You know, that flooded timber isn't something that I would normally say, hey, let's go hunt that. <laughs> but the sign led us there um, because we had seen deer that had gone – farther north when we were hunting in that back corner of that the big patch of wood. So we knew that deer had to be back in there. Well, once we found that first scrape right by where we landed our boat, it was like, oh, cool, we're onto something. So we started walking along the edge of that, going straight towards my where I dropped my pin on, on X. And uh, we were about halfway across this, this patch of timber when, I mean, we're not even talking – Oh, maybe 80 or 90 yards from the boat, we spotted a doe coming our direction. And this is this is early November, so ruts on, you know. And so we see a doe, and she's coming our way. And I had a doe tag for one, um, as well as two buck tags. And John had filled his doe tag already, so he was waiting on a buck. So this doe was coming right at us. So he says knock an arrow you can take her you know and we'll just kneel down right here when she comes through i'll shoot her so so he's gonna run the camera for me and stuff and and uh i knocked an arrow got ready and as she got closer we saw a buck behind her and we're going holy cow we're not even out of the boat for five minutes here and here comes this buck and he's chasing her and they're coming right in our direction they stopped about 60 yards out and she was sort of actually going straight towards where I was expecting that we were going to find them, a little bit farther away, um, towards where I'd, I had initially thought I'd go hunt. And so she starts walking away. So I grabbed my grunt and hit that real quick and trying to get the buck to come to us. He looked in our direction, didn't want anything, <clears throat> didn't want anything to do with us. So... We hit the can call, and all of a sudden, right on the same trail that we just walked in on, this little four-point comes running right down the trail and got within about 10 feet of us before he spooked. 
<laughs> so we haven't been out of the boat for 10 minutes, and we've got, you know, two bucks and a dough and smiles galore. We're like, holy cow, we found it, you know. <laughs> so it was, it was a really cool thing, you know. Well, then we we watched those two kind of fade off into the distance. They, they kept heading to the east, and uh, there was a bunch of willow brush and everything back in there that they just sort of disappeared into. And I tried to continue stalking along after them for a couple minutes there, but then they were getting away from me too fast. So we decided that was going to be the spot we'd climb up in the trees. So John climbed one, and I went right over to my initial location that I had planned on, climbed the tree, and as I was I was on my second step that I was mounting um, on the tree, <laughs> this doe and the, another smaller buck, it was a six-point, they came right out, and he was actually swimming around chasing her. They were going through a really deep hole that was right next to my tree. Um, I just kept climbing the tree going, holy cow, we're covered up in deer, and they're, they're swimming around in there. It was, it was crazy. And uh, I'd have never dreamed it. I would have never imagined how in the world would deer live back there, but they were, they were all over the place in there. So I climbed the tree. I no sooner than pulled my bow up and hung it up, I'm clipped into my saddle and, you know, just getting dialed in when the first doe and buck came out. And he was a 10-point. He was a good 10-point, about 120, 120-inch deer. And uh, he chased the doe, sort of makes a great big arc just past me out of range, going straight towards John. And I'm going, holy cow, this is not happening. You know, we just got into here, barely even clipped in, and this thing's going straight to John. There's, this is too good to be true. Well, I'm sitting there watching with my binoculars. This is probably one of my coolest memories, too, because it's just pretty unique. But I'm from my tree, I can see this deer going over towards John, and I can't see John. He's probably 150 yards from me, and we're both up in the trees, so the canopy's kind of blocking him from my sight, but I could see the deer clear as day in my binoculars, and I saw it before I heard it, and I watched his arrow pass clean through that box. <laughs> <laughs> it was the coolest thing. I was, you know, I was zoomed right in, and saw the arrow zip through, and the thing ran right towards me, and ended up dying about 40 yards from me. So it's actually submerged in water where it finally crashed. It's heads underwater, and uh, I, of course, you know, I grab my phone. I know John's going to call me any second, you know. <laughs> so I, I actually called him first, I think. And I'm like, dude, that was awesome. I watched your arrow go right through him, and he didn't see where the thing had gone, so he was really relieved when I said, I'm looking right at him. He's 40 yards in front of me. And uh, he's like, that's awesome. Well, then right then another buck showed up. It was an eight-point. And... Uh, He's like a 90-inch eight-point. And the thing comes right along the same trail, goes right towards John's dead deer, or dying deer at the time, and uh, stands right there about 10 feet away from him. And uh, his deer picks up his head and takes a big old breath of air, so he's just, you know, gurgling and <laughs> trying to get his last breath. And Well, it spooks that eight-point closer to me, and... Uh, 
he's standing right there, and John's like, he's a good buck. Are you going to shoot him? I said, if he gives me a shot, yeah. I'm lowering my standards for this one because this is an awesome story. <laughs> and uh, so, so I put my phone in my pocket, and uh, the thing picked his head up again one more time, took his very last breath that time. Well, that was all she wrote. That 8.1 had nothing to do with standing next to that thing. And he bounded in my direction, and he got to about 25 yards right in the open, standing in the water, and I just smoked him. And, I mean, he didn't even go 30 yards and actually went into that same big pool of water that, that other six-point had chased that doe through. He ended up dying out there in the water. Made me swim to find him. But uh, <laughs> It was underwater? <laughs> that was a, yeah, he, he died in the water, yep. Oh, yep. my gosh. Yeah, it was it was bad. It was November. It, you know, it was early November. I had to go out there and retrieve him. I had my knee boots on, and uh, so I was shoot. I was probably I was chest deep oh in that water to get him out of there. And uh, we ended up we had only been in our trees, you know, hadn't even left the boat for forty five minutes. We had two deer dead. It's awesome. And, uh, it was. That was a really cool experience. We ended up with both of those ones that day. We went home. Uh, the next day we got up and decided we weren't going to hunt because we both had to dry all of our stuff. We decided we weren't going to go back there again without waders. So we went shopping that day and bought some decent waders and then uh, had our deer checked. We had to go the check station and all that stuff and then the very next day we went back in there we decided to go back in for a morning hunt we were going to go to the same trees so as we're walking in we're basically halfway through the timber john gets in his tree i went the rest of the way through the timber to get in my tree and as i got to the base of my tree my phone goes off vibrates in my pocket and he's like don't move i've got a buck coming in already and i look back and there he is. I can see him in his tree. And he's at full draw. Whack! Let's it go. And he shoots another 10 point. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was one of those. It was like, how in the world is this happening? We found just a honey hole. And uh, so we ended up getting his out of there. And then on the last night of the hunt, um, the last night we were able to be in there, Actually, it was a whole day, all day set that we had. But uh, we had five different bucks chase one hot doe. She was actually, she had about a 150-inch gun point right on her. We actually watched them breed her four times that day, and they were within about 80 to 100 yards of us for about six hours. And uh, we were right in the, I mean, there was no way we were going to get anywhere closer to them until about an hour before dark. They moved off on us where I could actually climb down and try to pull off a stalk. And I got pretty close, but not close enough, and I ended up zipping an arrow right underneath of his belly. <laughs> Misjudged the yardage on it. It was like the very last couple minutes of daylight, and uh, I tried to stalk on him. I got It was open timber and a little bit of marsh grass. He's standing there right in the open, so was I. He's looking right at me, and uh, the only thing keeping him there was the hot doe that was standing right in front of him. Otherwise, he'd have been long gone because he was just, you know, he was love struck. It was one of those 
she's like, yeah, I know I should probably run away, but she's right here, and I got as close as I could and ended up missing another deer last year. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're missing good ones. All in the, so. same, all in the same spot, you know. <laughs> That's like, incredible. Worked out for you like that. That was a fun hunt. That was a really, really cool experience. So, is that just a an access thing? You think those deer are just nobody goes back there, nobody accesses it like that, or they go in there and it's kind of like what you know the hunting beast guys say, where the water just keeps people away. So, yeah, I definitely think water has a lot to do with it. Um, and that's, (laughs) it's one of those things. I almost hesitate to say that because the more guys hear that, the more, more everybody goes, well, I just got to get past the water. And I am starting to see more guys that are using, I guess what you'd call more extreme tactics to, to get to those spots. It seems like almost everywhere I go now, I find some sort of human sign, um, so it's not like it doesn't happen at all. It's just not happening by the masses, you know. So there's definitely there's definitely things that separate the crowd, you know, from from some of that really good hunting that's available. And some of those spots they they can't handle pressure either. So you know we were pretty fortunate in that spot just because it was the rut and there was a family of does that were living real close there. And it seemed like every time that we were in there, something was being chased around. So that was timing for one. I don't know if it would be that good if I went in there today to hunt it, but um, it was definitely holding, you know, some does in there that just pulled the bucks into them, and they felt safe enough to run around in that open timber, flooded but open. And uh, boy, it left them awfully vulnerable. Those are those things that, like, you know, getting in a boat and going for a mile boat ride to get back into there, not everybody's going to do that. So, yeah, it, it was definitely access that was our advantage there. And that was, it was, it was actually kind of funny. The The story behind getting the boat and, and actually using it was, that was all my doing, and, and uh, <laughs> John was, John was really reluctant at first because we were seeing lots of deer up in that section of woods, but they just weren't the deer that we wanted. And after seeing a few other people in there, I finally said, it's time to do something different. We've only got a week to do this, you know, and uh, we better not waste our time. Let's, let's at least go explore this spot that I had initially dropped a couple pins in. And so it was kind of one of those, Let's get out of our stands at 10 o'clock this morning. We'll drive around to the spot where we figured we'd take the boat off the trailer and hike it back to the river and put it in. And then we had to boat for a mile upstream and then start scouting and hunting. And uh, the look on his face was like, you really want to do this? <laughs> you really? He's usually pretty agreeable, but this one... There was no excitement in his face. So, you know, you know, and he's a, he's a hardcore hunter just like me, you know, but so you know there's a lot of guys that aren't going to be doing that stuff. And I, I guess that's another piece of advice when you ask 
hey, what what would kind of advice would you give? You know, looking for transition lines and you know rubs and stuff like that, food and everything. That's that's a really good jumping off point. But the other thing is to do the stuff that seems uncomfortable, and uh, you know, follow up on those thoughts of, boy, I wonder if you know there might be deer back there. You know, to me it it's to me it's never a it's never a wasted day if I'm trying something like that, even if I come up empty handed because I'll still learn something. Um, I just hate the idea of laying in bed at night going, and you know, I think tomorrow I'm going to go check that spot out. And then I don't. And then the next night I'm going, man, I wish I would have, you know, I just, I don't like that feeling. So I'd rather, I'd rather scout something that I thought was good and find out that it's not than wonder and then kick myself for not going into it. Well, that sounds like Frank's uh, hunting partner who's scout, 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 hunt. And, I mean, he, he does he does well, but that, that look you're talking about is the look that I get from Frank just about every time I tell him I'm going to do something. He says, you're going to do what? I took him back in over uh, Labor Day weekend to uh, check my trail cams or go retrieve one of my trail cameras, and he's like, what the hell are you doing back here? <laughs> like we we had to pull across this one log and we walked. I mean, well, I've, I've always, you know, I've hunted river bottoms and stuff for years, you know, so uh, it's either hip boots or waders, you know, or something. Knee boots. No, we're not going, you know, you're not going into this stuff. And he goes, he's like walking out in it. And I'm going, you're going to get a wet ass, dude. I'm telling you right now, you know, <laughs> Yep. Well, whatever. You'll never know how deep right that water is October, until you, you step in it. It. <laughs> it doesn't look that deep. Oh, there shouldn't be over your boots in here. Oh, oh, it is. Yeah. So, so when you dropped that pin, was your initial plan water access then? No, actually, my initial plan was we were going to walk through that timber, through the section of woods. There was, uh, I figured we would probably walk along the river, but through the woods um, to access it. And I looked at it thinking, boy, you know, water access would be great, but I didn't have a boat that would work for it. You know, like, I've got a good fishing boat, but I'm not carrying the thing anywhere. (laughs) And I didn't feel like canoeing down that river for a mile in November with deer, you know, if we did get one. So it was just kind of one of those, I didn't even think about water access at first. Uh, we just basically thought, we'll go through the woods. Well, that plan basically had to change because everything on the north end of those woods was bedding. So there was just, there was no sense trying to walk through that stuff to access that mark. Because um, if there was stuff in it, we were going to blow it out. So it really became pretty clear the day that we scouted it and we bumped those bucks out of there that the only way to access that marsh is going to be by boat. So, so is this a rowboat? Yeah. Yeah. It was a little 12 foot aluminum rowboat that uh, a friend of mine owns it. It was one of those, I was looking for a boat, you know, so I was just asking friends and stuff, Hey, does anybody have one for sale? You know, a lot of people have them laying back behind their sheds or something that they don't use. So, I just kind of put my feelers out there, and a friend of mine responded and said, yeah, I've got one you can use. It just sits out back by my pond. And 
He goes, you can use it all you want. So I didn't have to go buy one or anything. And so we got that and even had a little electric trolling motor for it. So I pulled my, my battery out of my boat and got it all charged up and ready to go. And we just had to carry the thing a little ways and put it down into the river. And it's about a mile by boat. So not a, you know, not, a really long boat ride, but I mean, it took some time. Matter of fact, yeah, it, it turned into being, you know, about perfect because that first day that we hunted in there, we had both of our bucks, his 10 and my 8, and they were both right in the bow of that boat, and then the two of us <laughs> were float, floating back down that river going, man, I hope this doesn't have a leak in it or anything. Oh, man. I was super glad that I didn't decide I'd go with one of the canoes that we got out here. So, Yeah, that would have they been were, a, a interesting yeah. uh, endeavor. So you, you had mentioned going out of state a couple times and coming home with uh, unfilled tags. How does your standards change um, going out of state uh, with, like, you know, cost of the tag, um, all that? Because, you know, sometimes, you know, guys – are like, well, it's the last day, so I'm going to shoot whatever, just going to, you know, I'm not coming back, so my tag is X. Or, you know, even like when we were in Ohio, it was, you know, there's just deer that you just weren't going to shoot what didn't didn't meet your expectation, like no matter the day. So what's your outlook on on, on, on going out of state? Yeah, great question. I I have a, I don't know if it's an unpopular view or if it's popular or not, but it's mine. Um, but basically, out of state, my goal is a Pope and Young class year. Um, and for some guys, it's any buck. For some guys, it's way bigger than that. You know, but if I can shoot 125, 130 inch deer, that's awesome. You know, I just, I always want to kill something bigger than what I've got here in Michigan available to me. And um, so I'm always looking for that. So that's kind of my, my jumping off point. And when it comes to the cost of the tag, I look at it like, man, I have no problem paying for an experience. I don't mind paying for stories and for the, you know, the education that you get from it and all that stuff. So if I come back with an unfilled tag, it's not the end of the world. You know, it's not like, yeah, I'd love to bring home the meat and a trophy and, you know, have another head to drop off at the taxidermist. But um, at the end of the day, do I really need the meat? Do I really need another taxidermy bill? Do I really need another, you know, I'm not going to put another 110-inch buck on the wall, you know. And these are my standards. And it doesn't mean that, you know, that, that has to apply to everybody else. So for guys that are listening, you know, that's not, I'm not looking down on anybody for any of that stuff. I'll never shame anybody for what they kill, that's for sure. Um, if you want to shoot a spike or a four-point or whatever out of state, I don't <laughs> care. You shoot your thing. Whatever makes you happy and gives you good stories. But So that, for me, like, I don't mind that. I don't mind eating a tag, you know, burning that. That's kind of the, the cost of the experience to me. Um, you know, and I, I actually played that out in Ohio a few years ago. I was down there. The very first fit, the first night, we had gotten down there actually pretty late in the day. 
and weren't even expecting to hunt that day. We were going to go out the following day. It was so late, but decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to go to this one spot that I had picked out on the map that looked like fairly easy access. I'd be able to get into it, just had to cross a little river. And um, so I found a deadfall, crossed the river, <laughs> tiptoeing across this dead tree, got down into this little spot where these two points came down into this little river valley. And sure enough, I had a about 110, 115-inch eight-point that came right to me. I mean, the last half hour of the day, the thing walked within 20 yards of me, and I let it walk. Got back to camp and everything, and boy, you know, everybody's like, why would you let the thing go, you know? Well, it's the first night here, and that's not why I came to Ohio, you know. And, of course, you get the question, well, would you shoot it on your last day, you know? And, of course, I say, no, I wouldn't, you know. Well, the thing let me actually practice what I preached there, because he did. He showed up on my very last sit in that <laughs> same valley, not in the same spot, but down that same valley. He was the last deer I saw there that week. Ended up being the biggest deer that I saw within range the whole week there. But, uh, you know, it just didn't, it didn't meet my goal of what I wanted to get out of it. So, so, so that was going to be my, my question. So, like, unequivocally, it didn't meet, meet your goal because I was going to ask how much of that uh, you saying the first day that you wouldn't, <laughs> that you wouldn't kill it on the last day came into play there you know like oh i gotta be a man of my word like (laughs) you didn't you didn't didn't tight string him (laughs) no 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 i actually ran the camera on him and and, uh let him go but it you know and of course you play that through in your head like wow should i you know should i just shoot him should i you know or not honestly you know even looking back at it yeah, I still wouldn't have shot him just, just because, for me, and this is, you know, my situation here, I have access to all sorts of public land just like you do too, everybody else here, but I've got chunks of private that I can hunt, and I, I hunt a lot, a lot, and um, I've been blessed to be very successful at that, you know, and um, so meat, you know, hunting for meat, I can do that just fine here. So I didn't need to come home from an out-of-state hunt with a cooler full of venison to make my wife happy or the family happy. You know, that's going to happen regardless of that trip. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing, the way that I sort of I sort of look at it is, you know, there's a reason that people go to states like Ohio and Missouri and Kansas and, you know, wherever, there's there's a reason that people do, and that's because there's opportunity for bigger bucks. And if I go to one of those states and kill a small buck every year in their standards, you know, a lot of the places down there, you know, you shoot 120 deer, and the locals will laugh at you and go, why would you shoot that, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, hey, so take it for what it is, you know, it's, whether it's right or wrong or whatever, I don't know. But I look at it like, hey, you know what? I'm 
I'm going to leave it here because maybe next year I'll come back and hunt the same year, same area, and he'll be a 140, you know, or somebody else will get a chance at a 140 because I let a 120 walk, you know, and uh, that's just sort of my thought process on it. You know, I like to, I like to come home with gear, but I don't know. To me, if I set a goal, I sort of like to stick with it for the most part. Sometimes. Like last year, you know, the, the experience is worth changing your goals in the heat of the moment, you know. That's the smallest buck I've shot in 10 years, and uh, probably the best story. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's not all about inches, you know. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say there's there's two things to that, right? One, I think we have the same sort of goals when we go out of state i mean that's you're trying to shoot something that you you couldn't shoot here and uh but i think along with that and i and i've heard stories of this from from other guys too but it that experience thing is like it's twofold so you're paying for that experience you're going out of state for that experience but you have to think about the experience of the person that's having the experience. So if they've never shot a eight point, uh, you know, a, a seventy inch deer here in Michigan, and they get a chance to shoot a ninety inch deer in Missouri, and it's easy, and it's the biggest deer they've ever shot, and you know they're excited about it, that's that's awesome. Who cares? And you know, if they went there because those deer are more plentiful, um, you know, more power to them. You know, that's that's the one thing, you know, everybody is all about inches and this and that. Got to be bigger than the last one I shot or, you know, some sort of thing. But, you know, that the story, like you said, you know, shooting that deer which would be, you know, a, a lot of people's, many people's biggest buck ever. Um, but for you, the story outweighs any of that. And, it, you know, it would have been cool if you shot that six point just to do it. <laughs> you know, I mean, to, to some degree, I mean, to have to go and dig them out of a, a hole, you know, have to go yeah. waist deep. Well, it, well, it's chest deep on you, but under in the water <laughs> i always got to get that little dig in there on, on tim but uh but yeah i mean that that story is amazing and and i think you know for whatever level of hunter you're at or the experience i mean frank is the mutant slayer so you know that that Buck you talked about at the beginning, that triple beam type buck. You know, my brother's got one of those on one of the properties uh, that he hunts, and he calls it Frank's buck because it's it's a mutant, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're we're headed to Missouri this year. Frank's, then you guys are going to Nebraska. Nebraska, too. So it should be a good year. And it, and what's your uh, your goals? Frank, for oh, that. It, you know, well, we hunted we hunted Ohio for six years, you know, and you go down there and uh, it's 
like you say, it's you have the opportunity at any time to see a buck bigger than you've ever seen before here, you know, in Michigan. You know, I mean, I've seen some decent deer over the years. You know, I've hunted a long time, and uh, I I think uh, earlier in 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 the hunts, you know, I mean, in the years, I saw bigger bucks more often here. You know, it's harder and harder now because of the populace. You know. You have you have so many people and so much pressure on these deer now. That's why the bigger ones are basically nocturnal till that rut starts. You know until they're exposed. But uh, I, I'm looking. You know, I'd like to shoot a uh, in Missouri. I'll, I'll shoot a 130. You know, 130, and and uh, I'll be real happy with it. Nice. Right. So, Tim, normally when John's here. We always ask about your bow setup, but John's not here. So what I want to know <laughs> is your saddle setup and your climbing system and, and all of that. Because, you know, there's like myself, uh, you know, first year trying out this whole saddle thing. But there's a lot of guys that are just getting into it, have a lot of questions um, about the saddle setup but the thing that i've found most where the learning curve is the saddle isn't the learning curve it's the the climbing system and the the way of being efficient with climbing and or transporting in and out so you know from being in the game for for 10 years and the evolution that that takes no matter whether it's a a climber or whatever you know, as you keep going every year, you kind of sharpen your skills a little bit. So, so what are you using to climb the tree, and what's your your whole setup for for each one of your hunts? Yeah, great question. So, you're right; it's definitely an evolution. It's one of those things that you look at it and go, every year, boy, can I do something a little bit different, a little bit more efficient? So, what I'm using now. The full tethered kit, so tethered mantis saddle with the predator platform, um, and I just absolutely love that setup. I've got another one that when I take my kids, I I can actually let them use one too. So I've got duplicate set, and then um, as far as the climbing method, um, I've been using hot helium sticks for years now and I cut them down basically modified them there's a lot of guys that have been doing that um, for the last few years and that all sort of started from the saddle hunter forum there's been guys you know for years trying to come up with the most efficient effective way to climb trees without having a whole bunch of bulk or weight and for me the weight isn't the biggest thing it's the bulk just because of my my frame size i'm not a very big guy so i don't like a full-size stick because when i attach it to my pack it's either sticking up a foot above my head or it's hitting me in the back of the legs when i'm walking <laughs> and i cannot stand that i carried lone wolf stick for a year and i'll never do that again um just because of the size um really like the function of them but um, the Hawk sticks, I cut them down to 24 inches. I actually think I'm going to do it again and go even shorter, but 
Um, that's just because I can't stop tinkering. Um, <laughs> but I like the 24 inches is about perfect. Um, for a year, I ran with um, single step aiders. So just basically hung those from the bottom two steps. And it was another basically 22 inch step, a loop of tubular webbing, just one inch tubular webbing with a piece of 11 millimeter rope buried inside of it for like a stirrup, essentially. Um, so it gives me an extra step just basically out of a piece of rope. Um, and one of those hanging from each stick just gave me extra height. Um, that was a decent way to climb. What I've settled on now for the, the heliums, I actually bought a five-step uh, black diamond aider. And so the way those work, it's basically like a section of loop that just like a little ladder that you can hang from the stick. So um, I changed out the rope to the Versa strap, feathered Versa strap, um, and I've got the the uh, Lone Wolf Versa button on the stick. So I can actually reach up with my stick and my Versa strap as high as I can reach and attach the stick so it's close to seven and a half feet, almost eight feet to the top of my first stick. And then I hang that five-step aider from the bottom step of the, the helium stick, and I'm able to climb up there. So for every one helium stick, I can gain seven and a half feet roughly pretty easily. So it gives me the chance to carry less sticks, which is less weight, less bulk, all that stuff. Um, and I'm able to get to, you know, 21 feet with three sticks pretty easily, 22 feet, somewhere in there. And then if I want to add any more height with my Predator platform, I can use the aider on that as well and still go higher. So I've gone as high as 21 feet with two sticks and the Predator platform with a five-step aider, just moving along as I go. And I just take a piece of paracord with a little carabiner on the end, attach it to that aider, so as I climb, I pull that aider up with me, and I can't drop it. It's attached to me all the time. So I just keep it right with me, and then when I get set up in my tree, I can just ball it up and stick it inside my pack, and I'm good to go. And climbing methods are one of those things that it's such a personal preference thing. You can, if you want to use your regular, hey, run down to the sporting goods store and pick up, you know, your section of your package of four sticks that are, you know, three feet or four feet long, whatever they are, and put them together and have a preset tree like that, that works just fine too. You know, same with screw-in steps, if you can use those, or climbing spikes, or bolts, or cranford steps, wild edge steps, anything. Um, they work pretty well. Um, I've got wild edge steps. I ran those exclusively last year, and I really liked those. Um, I still do. Um, I'm still using those a bit, and I'm actually, I'll use four of those with a, what's called a nader and a slater. Those are two terms that basically just came up from the, the Saddle Hunter Forum that uh, a couple guys on there came up, well, actually a whole bunch of people <laughs> contributed a whole bunch of stuff trying to come up with aider setups that are basically set up where they, they cinch around your foot so one of them has a, a hook that's strapped to your knee, and 
the other end of it is looped around your foot, so it's always attached to you. The other foot has a has one that's strapped around your foot, and then a carabiner at the end of it, and it's about waist high, roughly. So those essentially two steps travel with you. So I'm out my first wild ride step at five feet, five and a half feet, roughly, um, and then I'm able to lift up my leg that has the carabiner waiter attached to it, hook in, and then step up and attach my, my nader, and that's just knee attached aider, nader, nader, whatever. Um, and that attaches there, and then I step up and detach my carabiner from the step on the other foot, and then I can mount my next wild edge step another five and a half feet high. So for every step, you know, I'm gaining five and a half feet and only, you know, only attaching one. So I usually carry four of those. I can pretty easily get to 22 feet without adding any extra height for my platform. So usually that predator platform, I'll go either right at the same level as my top step, or if I need to go higher, I'll go as high as another four feet with it pretty easily. So that, uh, again, you know, there's no right or wrong way to do that stuff. And I always kind of caution people all the time because, Climbing can be a really easy thing to do in its most basic form, and it can be extremely complicated if you start adding these, you know, advanced climbing techniques, like climbing with aiders and stuff. So it's really not for everyone, and I really kind of caution people from starting that way. You know, don't just think that you're going to pick up a set of, you know, a nader and a slater set up or a five-step aider or whatever and think that you're just going to be able to go out and use that like you would if you were just attaching name your brand stick to the tree and climbing up. It's, it's something that requires some practice and uh, something that you have to, you know, put the time in at low level, not trying to go to hunting height, you know. Definitely grab one stick, clip it on, step it on, whatever you're doing, and then practice with an aider, just going up one stick high until you master that and you can't do it wrong before you start going higher. It's one of those things that with the explosion of saddle hunting and the lightweight, you know, craze that's going on right now, why it just scares me because a lot of people that have virtually zero experience are trying stuff that they really shouldn't yet. So, hmm. And so how does that change uh, when you're hunting with your kids? Because if you're moving that up <laughs> with you, you can't, yeah. uh, can't exactly yeah. do that. Right. Well, that's basically why I keep the uh, I keep the climbing sticks the, the helium sticks um, I usually hunt lower for one um, with almost all the kids my oldest boy Ben he's 12 now and I think the kid he I know he can out climb me he's just a he's a natural climber um, so I don't worry a whole lot with him the only thing I worry about is him being tied in so usually I carry a lifeline just like you would for any creek den setup so pick your brand whether it's a muddy or hunter safety system whatever um same thing uh lifeline with a prusik on it and i attach that at the base of the tree and keep the other end of it with me as i climb when i get up to hunting height i tie it off and then i have him clip right in to that prusik and then just advance that up the rope as he climbs. So he doesn't have to worry about 
uh, lineman's rope. Like I'm always always climbing with a lineman's rope. Um, I'm all about safety, you know. With, with four kids and a wife that depend on me to come home after <laughs> the end of every day of work and every time I go hunting and everything, boy, I'm always focusing on being as safe as I can. So I use that lineman's belt, but I don't want my kids to have to use one if I can do something that's even safer. So that lifeline is great. And they just climb right up and slide that food stick up as they climb. And uh, they're even climbing the five-step eighter like it's nothing. And it's amazing how quickly a kid will learn that stuff. They're like little sponges, and plus they're much more flexible, and seems like they... Every one of them, they climb right up that thing like it's no big deal. You know, I guess it's kind of like their little rope ladder on their playset, you know. So they're used to their steps moving around a little bit, I guess. But it works great. And then once they get up there, I put another tether on the tree that they'll clip into and uh, let go of the one on the lifeline. We've tried it with the lifeline just being the tether, but the problem is that it's still attached to the tree all the way down, so... As the kid moves, the rope moves, and uh, that can just cause extra movement down at the ground level. So, don't want to alert the deer with that. Yeah, that makes sense. So. Yeah, but it's a it is a phenomenal way to hunt with your kids. I mean, actually, to hunt with it, you know, if you're hunting two people in a tree, it's so cool because you're face to face. I usually hunt my kids, myself. We're all right handed, right? So. They're bow hand. They're holding it with their left hand. I stay on their right, and so on their weak side, I can run a video camera and stay right there close to them, and we can basically be face-to-face. I can communicate without having to, you know, neither of us are looking over our shoulders, you know, talking in the opposite directions. We're looking right at each other the whole time. It's a pretty slick way to hunt together. So, I mean, they think it's great. I think kids are like, oh, it's just like a mini hammock, you know, <laughs> they climb up in there, they think it's the coolest thing in the world, so, man, I, I tell everybody, you know, if you're hunting with kids, the saddle system is definitely the way to go, there's no safer way to be in a tree, they're always attached to that thing, they can't not be attached to it, and uh, even if they slip off the platform, they're still dangling from the same rope, that they, you know, <laughs> that they were already, so. There's no dynamic load that can be, you know, applied to it. Well, awesome. Yeah, the, the, you know, I'm wading through those waters right now myself with the climbing systems and, and all of that. And, you know, I, I basically own all of them. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's just, it is figuring out uh, how to do it, what to do. And then I get a lot of questions. How do you like this? How do you like that? And, you know, there's, you see all these guys that are doing one thing or the other and the, the, the learning curve on some of it is, is steep. And then it seems like, you know, if you want to be, you want to be lighter then there's, there's pros and cons to everything. So you're going to be lighter, but you're going to sacrifice this. And then you want to just be convenient. It's going to be heavier and it's going to be this. And if you don't want to have to DIY anything, then, then you're left over here. So, um, right, you right. know, that's, that's, you know, great information because like I say, you've been doing it for 10 years and it's, that's kind of where you've landed and, you know, with the saddle right. hunters, you know, now everything is, you know, somewhat 
readily available, but you know, you guys came up making it all, sewing it yourself, duct tape and super glue, and maybe this will work type <laughs> stuff. So, um, yeah. Well, that's where it's nice to have places where you can get hands-on experience with it, try it before you buy it, and it's it's becoming much you know much more available than what it was. Um, you know, and there's there's resources out there. There's places that you can go if you're interested in in getting into saddle systems or climbing methods. You know, we all seem to be climbing method geeks, and like you say, you know, I've got same thing as you. I've got them all, you know, or I've tried them all. Um, so, you know, guys are available for that stuff, myself included. So for anybody that's listening, if you want to, you know, reach out and get a hold of me, I'm always available. Um, I run the Michigan Saddle Hunters Facebook page, so I'm easy to access there. And um, I've got a full tethered kit. Greg and Ernie were kind enough to send along a demo kit to me so I've got basically two of every size saddle and a handful of predator platforms and pretty much everything that they have and sell I've got available here to use as demos so I'm always getting messages from guys that want to come try it before they buy it you know hey I heard you've got this stuff can I come try it so I put on saddle demos and then you know for, for crowds big groups as well as for uh, individuals, you know, so it's not uncommon for me to have, you know, one, two, three guys show up and uh, just do that on a, you know, regular weekday evening and set up in my yard here. I'm tucked back in the woods, so I've got plenty of trees to climb and lots of different climbing methods to test out and uh, saddles to try on and get you fitted for the size that you need. And that way you can see if it's for you, for one. But then if it is, what size do you need? That's always a big question. Um, you know, so those resources are available. And there's also a um, Saddle Hunter Google map. If you get onto the Saddle Hunter uh, website, saddlehunter.com, there's a, there's a map that's attached to that that you can actually it's got a filter on it to find other Saddle Hunters in your area. So, you know, if you're not in Michigan, you're, you know, not wanting to take a drive, to, you know, find a guy like myself, there's probably somebody in your area that's got some stuff, and usually almost everybody that I've seen that's put their information on that that map is doing it because they're, you know, all about building the, the saddle hunting community. So usually you'll find somebody on there that is relatively close to you that you can meet up with and either, you know, try their gear out or, um, you know, climbing methods, saddles, whatever. There's a good community out there. That's kind of one of the cool things about kind of the organic nature of our community. <laughs> it's really been like a family. So there's a lot of great people to connect with. Good resources. For sure, man. And we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I think that's kind of all we got tonight. Like I said, getting into the season and, you know, with a lot of guys, you know, kind of maybe falling into the same old, same old, um, we're going to start talking a little bit more about tactics and about thought processes and, you know, both of those hunts that you outlined there, um, kind of, you know, get to dive down into, uh, the, the actual process that it goes into, to, 
be consistently successful um, and, and to try to maybe break down these areas and, and you know, a little outside of the box thinking. So, you know, we really appreciate you coming on here and, and, and taking the time to chat with us this evening. Absolutely. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, no problem. We'll have to uh, Always a good time. get together and get, get Frank up in one of them saddles and see what size yeah. fits him. Has a uh, <laughs> 67-year-old fat man, you know. <laughs> hey, I've got just the thing for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we look forward to talking to you again. Thanks. All right. Thanks, guys. Yep. Later. Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.